started a new series uh, last week called Reset, Why Discipleship Isn't About Trying Harder. It's based off of our new book by the same name, Reset, Why Discipleship Isn't About Trying Harder, which was convenient. That way we didn't have to think up two things. So I uh, encourage you, if you haven't got that yet, to grab that. I think you'll uh, really like it, and uh, I think it'll affect you very deeply. You can grab out the bookstore if you want. Uh, in this conversation that we're having the next few uh, weeks, what we're talking about is who Jesus really is and what he actually wants from us. And kind of having that conversation, we started it last weekend by talking about the difference between discipleship and Christianity and how Jesus doesn't call us to Christianity, he calls us to discipleship. The term Christian is only used three times in the whole Bible. The term disciple is used 294 times in just the New Testament. So Christianity is a good thing. It's not a negative thing. It's a good thing, but it's a belief system. It's a, it's a, a theology and a doctrine that's wrapped in a subculture. So North American Christianity plays out kind of like this, like we come to church and kind of worship the way that we worship. Uh, my colleagues in uh, Chad, Africa Chadian Christianity would play out differently in the culture, but we would teach the same things, believe in the same word of God, the same Holy Spirit, those kind of things. So that's Christianity. Discipleship's different. Discipleship is Jesus calling you personally to his heart, saying, you, you come and love me, come follow me. I want to be your friend. I want to be your brother. I'm offering you a relationship. I am offering you discipleship. So Christ follower is more descriptive of someone who would go hard after the heart of Jesus, and that's what God longs for and God wants. So we talked about those two things um, last weekend. If you missed it, you can go to our website, graceohio.org. You can uh, watch that conversation or listen to it there. You get the book. Uh, we unpacking a lot of the stuff out of the book, and uh, would love to uh, uh, have you dive into that. This weekend, I want to push deeper into the conversation by looking at how we become like Jesus. So kind of the, the high goal of, of being a Christ follower is that we're mistaken for Christ. So we act like, talk like, think like, love like, or motivated like Jesus. So how does that happen? How do we do that? We're going we're gonna to press hard into that. Now, if you're able to be here last weekend, I kind of warned you ahead of time that you were going to need Advil after our conversation because we're going to, on purpose try to turn your brains into mush. We're going we're gonna to press hard into some things. It was fascinating. Uh, a couple services ago, um, <clears throat> somebody was talking to me afterwards, and I've had like four people talk to me, and they said, well, you were raised this way like I was, or you were raised this way like I was, or you were raised... And I was like, no, I wasn't any of those things, but we were all messed up the same way. <laughs> so birds of a feather just function together, and here we are. And this kind of wrong view or incomplete is probably a better word view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus is what we're trying to untangle and press against a little bit. So I want you to know that like there's, there's going to be times today that you're going to be scratching your head a little bit and there's going to be places where words, I don't, I'm not going to be able to take it further for you. I have to take you to a place, kind of leave you there and you're going to have to work with, with God to kind of sort all this stuff out. And that's why there's free Advil being offered at the, uh, at the uh, information center if you want it there. So buckle up. Here we go, all right? How do I begin to act like, talk like, think like, love like, be motivated like Jesus? How do you do that? 
the answer that I was raised with was you try harder. <clears throat> you try harder. And so in our church uh, that I grew up in, we had this thing called recommitments. You could recommit your life. And so the pastor would give an altar call, and you could come forward to be saved, <clears throat> and hardly nobody ever did that. Or you could go forward to, be, to recommit your life. And recommitment meant, I'm really going to try this time. Like, this time, I'm serious. So you would hear a, a sermon or something else would happen in your life. You go to church. You would say, I want to connect more with God, and so I'm going to recommit my life. And I'm really, I really mean it this time. I'm really sincere. I'm, I'm not messing around. I'm throwing out my Def Leppard tapes, and I'm getting rid of all that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm cutting these things out of my life. Like Jesus said, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. So I'm getting rid of these things, and I'm getting some accountability partners who are going to ask me questions, and I'm, I'm not messing around this time, and I would recommit my life. Now, the problem with all of that is while well-intentioned, it doesn't work. Just doesn't work, right? So <clears throat> even though I might say, I, this time I'm not looking at anything that's impure anymore. I'm not, no more porn, no more dirty pictures, no more. I'm throwing out the magazines and the video cassettes and my smartphone, all that kind of stuff. The problem is, is that I have a memory, right? So I don't, I don't need the internet to look at porn. I just can remember it. Or if we said, uh, I'm not going to be selfish anymore. My, I'm, I've been so selfish. I'm no longer being selfish. Well, how do you no longer be selfish, right? So you put down this effort, and you're like, I'm doing it this time, and it's actually impossible to do that. So you wind up into this cycle where you say, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to try harder, and it's always going to, it's always going to pull up short because in and of myself, I don't have the ability to solve those things. And yet that was the answer that I got. Now, the reason that we struggle with this is actually rooted in our understanding of salvation. Okay? So buckle up. This is where we're going to get crazy. Crazy deep is what I meant. Right? <laughs> so our understanding of salvation. This is how most of us view salvation. Most of us believe, whether subtly or on purpose, we believe that we receive our salvation from God because we chose to get it. So we have a barter mentality with God, right? God, <clears throat> I don't want to go to hell. So in exchange for getting me out of hell, here's what I'm willing to bring to the table. I won't smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do or cheer for Michigan. I will set all those evil things aside and you keep me out of hell. And we would look then at our Christianity and say, I am this person, I'm living this life, and I've added Christianity on top of that. I'm now going to go to church. I'm going to say some prayers that I memorize. I'm going to do some good deeds. And God, in exchange, you like keep my marriage together and keep me employed and keep my kids off drugs. Okay? And most of us have this barter mentality with God. We negotiate with God. And even if we won't come out and say it, <clears throat> we kind of believe it. I kind of did this for God. And so God kind of does this for me. And we have like this understanding that that's how we go through life. That's why if God doesn't do for me what I want, I feel like I got ripped off. It's all rooted in that mindset of how I receive my salvation. Now, 
The problem with that mindset is it's wrong. It's not biblical. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says this, I am dead. The Bible says I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. I'm spiritually dead. A dead person cannot negotiate. So think of yourself of being dead and laying beside the road and Jesus walks by. If I'm dead, I can't raise up my hand and make a deal. God, I really blew it this time. I'm giving my life to you. God, you know, I really, I got these weekends are getting crazy. I'm going to go to church. I'm spiritually dead. I cannot respond to anything because I'm spiritually dead. So I don't negotiate my salvation. It is given to me by God. He brings life to me. Okay? And everything that is oriented toward Christ-likeness in me, everything that's godly into me, is placed there by God because I was dead and now I've made alive in Christ. I didn't negotiate and say, God, I'll trade off these sins if you give me these blessings. I, I got nothing. I'm dead. Everything that I have in Christ is brought to me by Christ. Now, that distinction is very, very important. Because when we go then to follow Jesus, if we have this negotiated mindset, what we'll do is we'll be on a constant cycle of rededication. Okay, sorry God, kind of violated our deal. I'm not going to do that again. Sorry God, I kind of haven't been judged for a while. I'm going to start going again, right? We'll constantly, if we have the correct mindset of I'm dead and God has brought life into me, then when I go to follow Jesus, it's not me working and getting my act together. It's me allowing the life of Christ to kind of activate and take root in my heart. So last weekend, we talked about this passage, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5. Peter says this, his, Jesus is God's, his divine power has given us, has given us everything we need for life. It's been given to me, everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him, our intimacy, our oneness with him, who called us by his own glory and goodness. Not by mine. It's not my goodness that got me connected with God. It's God's glory and goodness that got me connected to God. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them... We may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruptions of the world caused by evil desires. He gave me everything I need for life and godliness. He called me by his glory and goodness. He gave me his promises. It's through his promises I can escape the evil corruption of the world and participate in the divine nature. Where am I in that process? It's what God does in me, not what I do for God. Everything I need for godliness is given to me by Christ. So everything that I need to please and follow God is given to me by the God who desires that I please and follow him. This is part of what Paul was talking about in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. It's not me, it's Christ in me. It's not what I'm doing for God, it's what God is doing in me 
that is causing Christ-likeness to be the outcome. The results of what Christ is doing in my life is causing godliness. It's not the results of me getting my act together and trying harder and doubling down on my efforts. This is why discipleship is not about trying harder. It's actually about receiving more. The more I understand what Christ has done for me, the more godliness will be the natural outcome of my life. In fact, the Bible says that your efforts, my efforts are like filthy rags. They're they're worthless to God. My righteousness, my effort to be godly is worthless to God. Okay? Even if I try really, really hard, it's still worthless to God. Imagine if, uh, if the Akron Art Museum was having a Rembrandt ex- exhibition, and I wanted to have my paintings hang with Rembrandt. So I read books on painting, and I went to painting classes, and my mother was an artist, and I tried really, really, really hard to paint a masterpiece, and I took it down to the to the curator, and I said, you must enter, look, look what I have done. Look at my efforts. I tried really, really hard. What would they do? They would tase me and throw me out on the street, right? Because I'm crazy. Doesn't matter how hard I try. I'm not going to accomplish that. Even more true with God, my righteousness means nothing to God. It's the righteousness of Christ. It's Christ in me that is the hope of glory. Not me getting my act together, but what Christ has done in me, through me, and for me. So the reality is that as a Christian, I cannot manufacture Christ-likeness. What I can do is reflect it. I can reflect what God is doing in me. Open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. It's page 804 in those Bibles. And if you're a smartphone, iPad, people will use the Version app. You can hit live in our zip code is 44333. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. There's a lot in this passage, so let me summarize it for you. In the Old Testament, there's a guy named Moses. Moses is the guy that God gave the Ten Commandments to. And God called Moses to go up onto this mountain. Moses went up on the mountain. He interacted with God. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses said to God, God, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. Can I look at you? And God said, no, if you look at me in the face, it would strike you dead. My glory is too overwhelming. So I tell you what, Moses, you can catch a glimpse of me as I walk away. And that's basically all you can handle. And so Moses did that. God walked away. Moses caught a glimpse of him as he was walking away. And the Bible says that the glory of God shone on Moses' face. His, his face glowed. So he walked back down to the Israelites with a glowing face, and they freaked out. Don't judge them. You would too, right? I'm just saying, glowing faces are freaky. And so what Moses did is he put a veil over his face for a few weeks, So he covered his face because the glory of the Lord was so strong. The Apostle Paul picks up on this terminology and uses it as an analogy, and he summarizes it in verse 18 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians when he says this, and we all who with unveiled faces, what does that mean? In the context of the chapter, it means this, we all who now interact with Christ directly, 
We who have been resurrected from the dead spiritually, we're no longer following the law. There's nothing in between us and Christ. We with unveiled faces, we who have Christ in us, we reflect the Lord's glory. We reflect what God has done. We don't, we don't manufacture the Lord's glory. We reflect it and are being transformed into his image. I'm not transforming myself into his image. God is transforming me into his image, Christ in me, with ever-increasing glory. What that means is this, the fancy word is sanctification. When I accept Christ, I'm sanctified. I'm being sanctified. I'm going to be fully sanctified when I'm with him. The normal way to say that is, I am made like Christ. I'm becoming like Christ. When I get to heaven and sin is null and void in my life, I'll be fully like Christ. My face is unveiled. The glory of God is in me because it's Christ in me who is the hope of glory. It's Christ living in me that changes my life, that transforms me into Christ-likeness. And the longer I journey with Christ, the more I become like him. Look what else Paul says. It's fascinating. With ever-increasing glory, which comes from whom? From the Lord, who is the Spirit. Not from me. It's not that the longer I'm a Christian, the better I get at being a Christian. The longer that I'm in the, in the Christian subculture, the more I understand how to function in the Christian subculture. No, no, no. The longer I walk with Christ, the more I'm transformed by whom? By Christ. And I reflect what? Christ's glory. See? The more Christ-likeness is the outcome of my life. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul uses the analogy of fruit. He says the fruit of the Spirit, another way to say that would be the byproduct of God living in you, the Spirit of God living in you, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those aren't, he doesn't say the more you practice your Christianity, the more these things are true of you. No, no, The deeper I draw into the heart of God, the more I reflect the glory of God, the more Christ-likeness is the outcome of my relationship with my heavenly Father. Becoming like Jesus is not about trying harder, but about receiving more and more of who he is, which allows me to reflect him more and more. So think of it this way. The more I experience and download what Christ has done for me and in me, the more that is the outcome of my life. If I look and say, I need to be a more loving person, right? I need to be a more loving person. Jesus is loving. I need to be loving the, the way to become a more loving person is not to say, I'm going to love you more. I can't stand you. I hate you. But I'm going to love you because Jesus said to Right? It's, not, it's never going to work. Why? Because love is from the heart. It's not from the mind. How do I become a more loving person? By realizing God's love for me. Where does that start? By remembering I was dead. I'm dead. Christ, I did nothing to earn God's love. I'm dead. What am I going to do? I did nothing to deserve God's love. I stood as an enemy of God in my heart. I rebelled against God. I spat upon God. I don't deserve God's love. God 
unconditionally, completely, perfectly loves me, and I am an unworthy wretch who is loved by a perfect God. The more that I download and experience that, guess what happens? It's reflected through my life. I now can love the people that I couldn't naturally love. Why? Because love is something given to me by God, not something that I manufacture in and of my own. Joy, right? I need to be more joyful, especially in the mornings, right? I don't like, I need joy. God is joy. You should follow God, right? Sound like a smoker, but it's like, right? So I don't know why unjoyful people sound that way. But it, right? So joy, what am I, am I going to will joy? I'm having more joy. No, you're not. You're burdening yourself with something you can't do. What you'll get out of that is more guilt. But if I can download God's love, God finds joy in relationship with me. I've brought nothing to him. The Bible says God actually looks forward to getting up in the morning, poetically, and spending time with me. I bring joy to his heart. He gives me a joy that supersedes my circumstances. It's supernatural. It's not something I manufacture. It's something that God gives me. And as I download and experience that joy, guess what happens? I become what? Joyful. I reflect. I'm transformed. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, right? Guys, right there is where most of our misconception about being a Christ follower comes in. Because we were taught, many of us, that if you want to be like Jesus, you better buckle down and get your act together and become like Jesus. And Jesus would teach us through his word that if you want to be like me, you should draw close to my heart. He uses the term yoke. You should yoke yourself to me. Learn from me. Understand what I've done in your life and who I am. And me, Christ-likeness, will be the outcome of your life. We have this mindset that we can will Christ-likeness into our lives. It's not going to work. We tend to think of Christ-likeness like childbirth. If I labor and work and concentrate and push and struggle and agonize, then I have mercy, right? I have peace. I have grace, right? By the way, if you named your kids those things, you're probably a homeschooling family. I'm just saying, come on, take a hit. It's good for you. I'm just saying, right? We're a homeschooling family. That's why all our kids are named after the Old Testament. But it, right? But it's like, ah, I did it. And we have this, now I've achieved mercy. You have? You, you learned it and mastered it, and now you perfectly execute mercy. It doesn't even make sense. But that's the path we would take to Christ-likeness. I have achieved compassion. You have? Yeah, I memorized every verse on compassion. And that makes you compassionate? It doesn't even make sense. If we know that's not true, but we'll take that path to try to attain it. 
Christ-likeness is more like a glow-in-the-dark toy. Leave it by itself, it does nothing. Put it under the light and close to the light, and it will absorb the energy or the glory of the light, and then it can reflect light. It can't manufacture it on its own. It has to have a catalyst in it, and the catalyst isn't its own will. The -the glow-in-the-dark toy can't say, I'm going to make my chemicals react and glow. No, no. It's got to be placed next to something. It will absorb what that energy is, and then it activates what's in it. It's Christ in me. He gives me everything that I need for life and godliness. I reflect his glory. He is transforming me. And he is making me and who he wants me to be. Now, following Christ is not about trying harder. I want you to hear what I didn't say. I didn't say it's devoid of effort. So very different things. I didn't say it's devoid of effort. It's the reason I put the effort in that I'm looking for, right? So as a follower of Christ, Christ is in me. The life that is in me is produced by him. I do certain things. I put effort into certain things, but why do I put those effort, that effort out, right? So for instance, if I'm following Christ, I ought to read the Bible. I ought to read the Bible every day. Why? To make myself like Jesus. No, it's not going to work because the Bible says the demons know the Bible inside now. They don't love Jesus, so that doesn't work. Why do I go to the Bible? I go to the Bible because I can discover in it the heart of my heavenly father. Because if you want to hang out with Jesus, the place that Jesus most clearly reveals his heart and his mind is in his word. The Bible is alive and it's active. It's not a normal book. It is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. In other words, these are the words of God. So if I want to interact with God, I should go to the Bible And hear God. If you want to meet Jesus, meet him at the Bible. What am I looking for? All the principles of joy. No, the heart of God. The mind that he has put in me, his thoughts, the heart he's transforming in me is revealed in God's word. And I understand God more as I understand his word. Then that glory is reflected through me. We're going to pray, right? Prayer, it takes effort to pray. Why do we pray? Because you have to. I memorized this prayer when I was a kid. You rub these beads and you pray, right? And I pray, for a, I pray for a safe trip home. I pray for blessed food because we don't have blessed food. Only in America do we have blessed food. I pray for a good night's sleep. I have to pray. It's like a good luck charm. Well, the Bible says, no, no, no. Prayer is not something that you memorize and repeat endlessly. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament specifically says, don't do that. What is prayer? Prayer is me conversing with God. God is a person, right? It's a relationship. He wants me to interact with him. Prayer allows me to interact with him. God talks back to me in prayer. Now, he doesn't show up in your bedroom and freak you out, right? He talks back to me. What does it sound like when God talks back to me? It usually sounds like the Bible. So when I'm praying, 
And all of a sudden, these passages of scripture come to mind. All of a sudden, I'm remembering something I was taught or something that I read and learned on my own. That's God interacting. God's voice most often sounds like the Bible. That's what it sounds like the most of the time when the Holy Spirit speaks to you. That's why we pray. We don't pray to get stuff from God or because we're going to choke on our food if we don't pray. We pray to interact with the heart of our Heavenly Father. We go to church. Why do we go to church? I've been asking myself that question, right? Why do we go to church? Because mom makes me. No. Why do we go to church? Because Friday was crazy and I better get to church. No. Why do we go to church? The Bible says that the church is the body and the bride of Christ. I cannot interact with Jesus and know his heart and mind if I don't know his body and his bride. Are you going to be my close friend if you don't know Heidi? No way. You can't even understand me if you don't know Heidi. You can't even understand me if you don't hang around Heidi. Why? Because she is me. Why do we go to church? Well, we go, we go to church for ourselves? No, that's a byproduct. We go to church to interact with the body and the bride of Christ. Why? Because it actually draws us closer to the heart of Christ. I understand him as I understand his people. I understand his love. I understand how it all works. Does it take effort to go to church? Sure it does. Sure it takes effort to go to church. Why am I going? It's not to pay God off. It's because I want to know his heart and know his mind more so that I can more fully embrace what he is doing in my life. Guys, I wonder what would happen if we took this mindset and started to follow Jesus this way. How would our prayers change? Because I, I cannot give to others what I have not received from God. And most of the time when we pray, what we're saying is, God, help me knock it off and get my act together. What if we prayed differently as a dead person who has been given life? So what if I was praying, and instead of praying, God, make me patient. Make me patient, God. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him right? Every mother's prayer, right? What if we pray, God, help me to understand the depth of your patience with me. Show me how patient you are with me. Help me see the need, and then help me, God, to love you because of that gift that you give to me. Help me to love you with all of my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength because of the depth of your patience with me, you know what would happen? You would love your neighbor as yourself. God, give me compassion. God, you've got to, I don't have any compassion. I, can't, I threw some teddy bears to some poor kids, and I still don't love them. I need more compassion. What if instead we changed our prayer and said, God, show me the depth of your compassion for me, because I stand as someone undeserving. It's what you've done for me, not what I've done for you. What would happen? Compassion would be the outcome. As I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, 
I will love my neighbor as myself. God, give me grace. God, give me joy. God, give me long-suffering. God, give me peace. The outcome of what God does in my life, then, affects the lives of people around me. Why? Because I'm reflecting who God is, and he is transforming me. And that comes from following the heart of God. This is why Jesus said and what he meant in John 14, 15, when he told his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey what I command. He wasn't saying, if you love me, you will knock it off and get the rules right. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We have unveiled faces. We don't do the rules. We don't follow the Mosaic law to get to God anymore. Jesus wasn't saying, if you love me, stop it. What he was saying was this. If you love me, you'll obey what I command. If you love me, your behavior will align itself. If you love me, if you connect your heart to my heart, if we yoke together, if we become of one mind and one spirit, if you learn from me, your behavior will alter. It's your love for me. It's what I'm doing in you. And as you receive that from me, and it generates love in you, that will be the outcome of your life, and you will give it to others. As we draw closer to the heart of our Heavenly Father and learn from Him, we reflect the heart of God in our lives. When I was uh, 17, I think I, I think I was a junior in high school. I might have been a senior, but I think I was a junior in high school. I got up one morning at 4.45 to leave at 5 o'clock to go to baseball practice because I had a crazy man for a baseball coach who thought we should practice early in the morning, then go to school, then practice again at night, which was great because then I got to throw up twice a day, and that was awesome, fantastic. And uh, he thought that was the key to a great baseball team. And it wasn't. We didn't win a lot of games. None of us went pro, and almost all of us look like me. So theory broken, right? But that's what we had to do. And so I would drive myself to school every day. I'd get up 445 during baseball season go to school. My dad had bought a brand new car. He had it for a couple months. And my dad always parked his car under my basketball hoop. I would put my used car in the garage because it was my car. My dad would put his brand new car outside. I will not have that same arrangement with my children, by the way. Um, But in order to play basketball, I had to move dad's car, which was no big deal. I would back it down the driveway and then shoot baskets. And my dad would say to me, put it back where you found it because you're going to forget it's back there. And so I did this all the time for years. Like I moved dad, even before I had my license, I would move dad's car down the driveway and shoot baskets, right? And every once in a while, I would forget or ignore, and he would look at me and he'd say, you're, one day, you're going to forget it's back there, and you're, you're going to run into that car. So the night before baseball practice, I was shooting baskets, moved dad's car, didn't feel like going in and getting the keys from dad's car, so I left it back there, hopped in my Escort GT, orange and black, huh? Anybody? Amen. And so um, to go to baseball practice, I love that car, and go to baseball practice, put it in reverse, let the clutch go, went flying out of the garage, tagged dad's car at the front headlight, and then went the distance all the way back to the end of his car, just annihilated his brand new car that I left in the wrong place and I forgot was back there. I got out of the car 
and I'm looking at it, and it's just that sick feeling of, I got nothing. I got nothing, right? There's no way out of it. I'm not going to get it down the knees, body, and frame and get it fixed in the next two hours before my dad gets up. I have no excuse, like my mom's car. I, I wanted to blame her. I'm like, Phyllis did it, and that wasn't going to work, you know. I thought about running away. I was like, well, if I disappear and never come home, I'm just standing there. I destroyed his car. I destroyed my car, and I got, I got nothing. I'm a dead man, right? What I had at that moment, catch this now, was a relationship with my father. Two things I know about my dad. He loved me and he's proud of me. I've known that my whole life. I knew it to the day that he died. And I know that even as he's in heaven now, he still thinks that about me. I, I knew that about my old man. So I had a relationship with my dad. And my dad and I had a deal. I have the same deal with my kids. My dad's deal with me, if I said this to me a thousand times, he would say to me, don't lie to me. Come and tell me what happened and we'll work it out. And I knew that and I had done that before and I knew that's how my father worked. Don't lie to me. Come to me and tell me what happened and we'll work it out. And I knew he loved me and he was proud of me and I got nothing. So I walked into the house, went into my dad's room, five o'clock in the morning, stood by the bed, right? You guys know how your little kids will do that, stand by the bed? It's cute when they're little. It's creepy when you're 17, right? And so I'm standing by the bed, and my dad wakes up. Somehow parents know that their kids are standing by the bed. My dad wakes up, and he's like, what are you doing in my room? And I was like, ah, just putting this knife away, you know? But it, standing there, and uh, he goes, what are you doing? I said, Dad, I wrecked your car. You did what? I wrecked your car. How'd you wreck my car? It was in the driveway. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Got out of bed, came downstairs. We walked out into the driveway. He's looking at the two cars. He does this thing, the dad nod. You know, the, uh, I should have stopped with your sister. Why were you born? That, that <laughs> nod, you know. Shook his head. He looked at me. Now, listen, I knew exactly what he was going to say. I knew exactly what he was going to say. Right? I told you to put the car away. I know, Pop. I told you this would happen. I know, Dad. I know. You know, you're driving a car, son. You need to be responsible. I know that. I know. You're going to pay the insurance deductible on this. It's 500 bucks. To a 17-year-old 1988, that's a lot of money, right? 500 bucks. I knew. Now, it's funny. I knew all that was going to happen. Because my dad held me accountable for things. I didn't get away with stuff in my house. We had to be responsible for things. He wasn't angry. He was just holding me accountable. Then what he did next, I also knew he was going to do. Put his arm around me and he said, we all do dumb stuff. Kissed me on the head. Said, I love you, son. Don't be so shaken up that you're not safe driving to school. We'll work it out tonight. Done. And my old man, aside from teasing me, which is the love language of the Bogue family, right? We harass each other. He never brought that up again. He would bring it up in a joke. You wrecked all of my cars, which is true. 
actually totaled all of my father's cars when I was a teenager. But he never, never held it over my head. Catch this, ready? It was if there was no condemnation. I had a relationship with my dad. That's all I had. I didn't have, I was dead. What am I going to do? Go barter with him? Go blame him for it? I got nothing. I did everything he told me and warned me not to do, and the outcome was exactly what he said it was going to be. I got nothing. What I have is a loving father. So when I messed up, what I did was, ready? I went boldly into his presence. I just better go tell him. I confessed what I did. I didn't hide it, I didn't sugarcoat it. That's what I did, Dad. I did it. Right? And then I received his love and affection for me. My dad did a couple things for me that day. One, he taught me how to be a father, because I got the same deal with my kids. Stuff happens, not to the end of the world. You come tell me about it. Own it. That's all. The more important thing that he did is he taught me about my heavenly father. This is the way that God interacts with you, son. Guys, what do you have with God? You've got nothing. You've got filthy rags. You've got nothing. Well, God must want this. He went, no, he doesn't. You've got nothing. What's he want? What's the greatest commandment? Love me. I want you to love me. What's that look like? Well, it looks like our hearts being yoked together. It looks like connecting with each other. Well, how does that play out? kind of depends on the circumstances, but it involves a lot of trust. It involves a lot of you receiving. Well, I'll make that happen on my own. No, you won't. You've got nothing. I'll make this happen in you. Lean into your relationship with me. And when you lean into your relationship with me, you will please me. My dad wasn't furious about the wrecked car. He would have been incredibly hurt if I would have lied to him. Incredibly hurt if I would have run away. He would have looked at me and he would have said, Son, I thought we loved each other. Son, I, have I ever given you a reason to lie to me? Have I ever lied to you? See, it's our relationship. How do I take on Christ-likeness? By taking on Christ. I don't get my act together. You don't have an act to get together. You got nothing. But you have a Savior that loves you that wants to show you, that will hold you accountable. He disciplines those he loves, right? Because he forms us, makes us mature and complete so we don't lack anything. But he does it. And if I want those outcomes in my life, I don't get those by trying. I get those by leaning into his heart. And if you love me, you'll wind up doing what I can. Now, guys, for the sake of this weekend, I would ask you questions like this. Do you trust the heart of God? It's 
very different than are you behaving well. You trust the heart of God. When, when you have a breakdown with God, what's your response to him? You trust the heart of God. I'd ask you questions like this. Are you, are you pursuing the heart of God? Reading your Bible, praying, going to church, not because you better, you better tick those things off or you're deep frying. No, no. Do you want to know? Because the ones that I love, I want to know. I want to know Heidi. I want to know my kids. I want to know my friends. I want to know my Savior. Why would I, why would I involve those things in my life? Because I want to know his heart. And when they're completely absent in my life, what does that say about my relationship with him? And then I would ask you this question. Are you leading other people to the heart of God? Mom, dad, husband, wife, spiritual leader? Somebody comes and they, says, and they say, this is my behavior. To look at them and give them correction in behavior is not what it means to disciple someone. To take them to the heart of God. Dad, this is my behavior. All right, let's talk about our relationship, son. Are you leading people to the heart of God? Now, I'm going to ask the band to come out. And I want us to take a couple minutes here today and process this. And, and let me talk to you for a second. Catch this. I have now taken you in this conversation today as far as I can take you. I, don't, I literally don't have anything else to say about it. So I told you that at the beginning. I'm going to run out of words. I'm going to run out of illustrations because all my illustrations when it comes to this are, are going to break down eventually, right? So this is one of these things. If I gave you a to-do list to walk out of church with today, it would actually do the exact opposite in your life of what God wants. So this is one of those conversations that I have to hand it to you. And then you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says that at the moment you accepted the salvation of Christ, the Holy Spirit came and indwelled your heart. So this is one of those conversations, if you're a Christian, that I hand to you, and you and the Holy Spirit have to work it out. I can't give you five ways to measure whether you trust God or not. You kind of have to ask that question on a very deep level. I can't give you three things to do to love Jesus. You have to press that into your own life. I can't do it for you. Okay? So we had the conversation. We wrote the book to try to point you someplace. But now your personal relationship with God is where you have to land it. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the Bible says this. The one thing a dead person can do is hear the voice of God call them to life. That's it. The Bible says that it's God who draws us to himself. We don't go seeking God. God comes seeking us. And when I'm dead on the side of the road, I can hear the voice of God. It's the only thing I can do. It's a supernatural thing. God does it for us. And when I hear the voice of God, I can do one of two things. I can kind of roll over and go back to being dead, or I can reach out. And I can say, Jesus, 
I believe that you're God. I believe that you were raised from the dead. I want to receive salvation from you. I want to love you. I don't even know if I know what that means yet. But I want to receive what you're offering. At that moment, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. He says, I want to love you back. And you know what? You come and tell me you're a sinner and we'll work it out. You and I will work out your salvation. We'll begin to go down this path together. And all of this will make more and more sense. So if you're here today and you've never felt connected to God like you do right now, it's usually what it's like for us. We process it emotionally. I've never heard of God this way. I've never thought of God this way. And I'm like, I like feel like I want to love God. I just don't know anything more than that. That is the Holy Spirit of God calling you and saying, you know what, I, w- I want to give you life. Would you like to receive it? And I encourage you to do that. Say that prayer. Your, no magic words. It's your heart to God's heart. Respond to him that way. Okay? As a Christian, it's yours now. You take it, press into it. God, where are we actually at? You're not a follower of Jesus yet. Respond to that voice. All of us praying, God, help me to receive what you've given to me. And would you take that and reset my relationship with you?